Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 124 of A Conversation With. Today, we're back with Caleb the Mechanic. How's it going, Caleb? Doing well. Doing well. How about yourself? Good. Keeping it moving. (laughs) That's all you can do. So here we are in our third installment of this series, looking at, uh, I think, what, what, you know, without fluff and without exaggeration as well, can be termed the meltdown of the Catholic Church these past few decades, and trying to excise why that is, um, at least at least uh, locally, uh, all human failings are the result of of um, uh, avalanches of of little failures. A little way I could teach us a bit about this, but uh, just like with ca- with cancer, you can have all sorts of unhappy um, life choices. Um, but you know, living underneath that that power pole might have something to do with it. On top of your smoking, drinking, and staying up all night and whatever. Uh, and so, where where Caleb has graciously allowed me to extrapolate these past two episodes is that Vatican one. And uh, I think distinct to uh, some of the foci on these channels on BitChute and Vimeo and YouTube for Apocastostasis, um, might be interested is specifically the legalism of Vatican I. And so we've built this up. We've kind of um, kind of gotten an idea of where we're coming from in, in, in Catholicville and uh, our appraisal of history and appraisal of maybe how this crisis came about. Uh, Caleb, to put you on the spot, and you're a busy man as as soon as I am, probably more than I. Um, how would you recap our past two uh, chit chats? Well, um, we definitely got into diving into the sort of material flaws, like a, a, a I would say probably an overly focused um, attempt to try and clean up what was materially going wrong with the church, rather rather than pushing the moral and the spiritual aspects of it. Um, particularly because uh, when you go through most of, uh, in fact, actually it's pretty common even with these days uh, when you talk to a lot of Catholic podcasters and they talk about, well, 
these have already been defined and it's been this and if you do this and it's anathema and blah 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 and it's like yes given but the the focus on well for example the oath on modernism oath against modernism um all they really did was drive a whole bunch of people who have no problem taking oaths and lying about it into okay yeah we're just okay we'll take the oath and we're just going to do what we want so um and it it didn't really it didn't really i mean it, it addressed the issue to be sure but it didn't fix the issue because it was a bunch of people who were willing I mean, if you're not if if you're willing already to to break the commandment about lying, then taking an oath really doesn't like it doesn't actually add anything to the security like at, in trying to preserve the structures and the dogmas and the doctrines of the church. And it was that sort of excessive focus. If we can have them do this materially, that seemed to be um rather rather than actually focusing on the spirit on the more spiritual aspects of it um i think and i love saint pius the 10th um but i think he would have been far better um approaching it from a the the approach of say louis de montfort you know someone 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 who's you know going to say these are the things this is why it's going to trip you up and you can go ahead and do this but you're damned if you do and I think that probably, I mean, granted, yeah, you know, to be sure, a lot of them probably didn't care one way or the other. Um, but for the rest of us, um, it's weird because right after we got done talking about these things, I got, I had a discussion with an Orthodox friend of mine and he's like, yeah, we don't bother with all that because you're either Orthodox or you're not. And if you're not, then we just don't listen to you. Um, you know, it's, uh, and I've been looking at the church and, and it's like, you know, maybe that's actually a better approach. Um, it gets to be hinky because obedience is extremely important in the, much more so in the Catholic faith than it is in the Orthodox faith. As far as the way the mystics, the mystics, the saints, everybody approaches obedience much, much differently. Um, but yeah, it, you you can definitely tell there was a much more material approach than a spiritual approach and the spiritual approach is actually, I think particularly these last few days is, has sort of illuminated me that the spiritual approach is so much more important. So. And thank you, Caleb, for that. And uh, as I've mentioned twice before and, and um, kind of as an unwritten rule that I've, I've made a point to say out loud, at least, um, you know, Caleb and I's uh, discussion here, no, we're not trying to convince each other. We're just trying to bring up a point that maybe other people aren't bringing up and, and maybe other scholars can, can build off of it or ourselves in our own uh, later work and broadcasts and so forth. So again, as, as uh, this recording will take the course that it takes and, and perhaps subsequent ones, but nobody's trying to, to um, out the other, up the other or whatever um, in that legalistic way, <laughs> um, which I'm afraid has, has dominated a lot, of, a lot of religious discourse and apologetical discourse. All right. So where I'd like to bring something, um, bring, bring us, um, you know, to, to continue this discussion here is a meditation on the Reformation and then bring things up to the First Vatican Council. Then I mean to throw it back to Caleb. And then actually, I'd like to talk about St. Pius the 10th of happy memory to use the old and the, the beautiful usage there. 
Um, so what I thought to to say here is this idea that that Christianity, particularly Mediterranean Christianity, which you can call Catholicism, you can also call it Orthodoxy, you can call it Catholic Orthodoxy, call it the 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 original Church, whatever whatever we we want to call it. Um, Medi- I'll, I'm going to use Mediterranean Christianity is a synthesis of two very robust and noble traditions. And there is a dominant and a recessive trait to this. And these two traditions are the the Greek mind and the Greco-Roman mind, if you want, and then the Hebraic mind. And as I say to the kids at the school, when it comes up in history classes or whatever, catechism classes, uh, Christianity, Mediterranean Christianity, whatever delineation, is basically a Hebrew skeleton with Greek flesh. It, it has the, the Hebraic, uh, I'm using another very specific term here, a very uh, Hebraic mythology. And so we have the whole Bible story and, and, and that whole meta-narrative. And when I use the word mythology, especially for a lot of our viewers here, Caleb, I'm meaning that simply in the sense of a story which has a significance to a specific group of people. I'm not saying a made-up story. Um, so the, the, um, the skeleton of Christianity is this Hebraic story of Israel, which is kind of uh, sublimated into the story of Jesus, which is sublimated into the story of the church, which is extranational. That's the skeleton. That's your Bible there. And then you have it fleshed out in the early Mediterranean centuries with the church fathers, the early councils, yes, the the exclusive teaching of the the Bishop of Rome in the early church, and and so forth. And so this is your Christianity, and it's always existed in history, especially, you know, Western history, west of Jerusalem. Um, It's always existed with this dominant uh, Greco-Roman strain or or, uh, gene, and then this recessive uh, Hebraic strain. And then um, taking things up to the Reformation to make my point about Trent and then uh, Vatican I, um, more or less from, from the early centuries up until the Renaissance, this uh, symbiosis, this symphonia, this balance between the dominant, Hebra- uh, the dominant uh, Greco-Roman and the recessive Hebraic tendencies uh, is maintained. And if you want to look at things like um, the, the uh, so-called Nestorian church, or the um, Oriental Orthodox churches uh, in e- Ethiopia or Egypt, for instance, um, and even even things like um, the Albigensian um, uh, uh, heresy in southern France, you can kind of see this balance is disrupted. So, in the case of the Nestorians or the Oriental Orthodox, who are not the Eastern Orthodox. Um, you kind of see a a bust out of that Hebraic strain. Uh, Some of those communities celebrate aspects of the Mosaic law, for instance. Um, And then in the case of of Gnosticisms, uh, including the Albigensians, um, you see kind of a a bust out, so to speak, of of that Greco-Roman strain. But more or less for the medieval uh, period, up until the, the Renaissance, you have this balance. And then at the Renaissance, you kind of OD on, uh, on that Greco-Roman stuff, 
right? A bunch of butt naked people, a bit of wine, too much cheese, too much volleyball, uh, too much New York <laughs> Times, whatever. Uh, great stuff in their, in, their, in their spheres, but anything can be taken to excess. The Reformation is um, almost like a car out of control is an is uh, catholic reformation or protestant reformation or vice versa um is basically an attempt uh, i don't i'm sure in montana you have this problem we have it in connecticut icy roads yeah <laughs> um right we've all done spun spin outs and we've lived to tell the tale evidently um you you have a spin out and then the rookie mistake is to completely jack that wheel the opposite direction and that's your reformation so you're you're um, your Renaissance in this uh, setup is ODing on your, your Greco-Roman stuff and that type of thinking and that synthesis and, and whatever. And then your Reformation, Catholic and Protestant, is ODing on the Hebrew stuff. And so you get your Ignatius Loyola and this is how it is. And blah, 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 blah. The Catholics have a kind of nuance in the properly the counter-Reformation, and it's basically a flipping of that. So it's going to be a dominant uh, Hebraic strain. And Caleb's going to have quite a stretch to, to push back on this or ask questions. I know he's, he's allowing me to, to extrapolate kindly here. Um, the the counter-reformation from the, from the Council of Trent until uh, Vatican II, ultimately, is going to be this dominant Hebraic strain. This is how it is, and this is the catechism. This is how you do, and you're going to have this really ailed, retentive missile where the priest's fingers are just directed and literally his eyeballs at certain points and every bow, and then, and then that's going to spawn even more ailed, retentive people about, you know, well, if Christ's name is mentioned, do we bow down this and Mary's? And what if it's the Pope on this type of feast day on the third class of the octave of, <laughs> of this sort of thing? And, and you know, it, it feeds into a certain personality type. But the point is that um, it's this dominant Hebraic strain and then this recessive Greco-Roman strain, which actually explains some of this tension you mentioned, Caleb, with this syllabus of errors, for instance, on the oath against modernism and things before, before the Second Vatican Council. The long story short is that's, that's kind of how I see church history. Um, I have some things I want to say about Vatican I building up to our point here, but I've gone on for a long, long time, Caleb. Please let me know your thoughts. <clears throat> there's there's one part where I would probably give you a little bit of pushback because I did, I, did um, I think, 20 episodes on the Council of Trent. Um, and the, the ghost of the Council of Trent is far more fearsome than the documents actually are. Um, the... As I was going through the reforms, and they were, I mean, there's there's a few specific things where they were like very much this is absolute. And the, and truth be told, they were things that it's we we reaffirm, you know, the council of the Lateran, we reaffirm this council. And if you disobey with this, then anathema sit. But when it came to the things that they were um dialing in, particularly because the main thing that they were trying to uh, get rid of was all of the clergy clergy abuses, the um the abuse of the the chapels and the parish and the parish churches um, becoming pri basically the private property of the priests. Um, and when you look through the law, and I can tell you that it, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer type person. Um, I can read technical data just fine, but but the legal stuff really uh, nearly broke my brain. But when you cut out and you take clause after clause after clause, and then you kind of break them up into separate, into separate sentences and then connect them with their actual conclusions. Um, what I noticed was a lot of the reform um, said, 
it's going to be this way. But charity and mercy are the first rule. And so it's like, it's going to be this way. And this is the, and this is what the judgment should be, but it's up to the bishop. It's up to the abbot. It's up to, you know, and it's up to, it's up to the prior and it's up to these people to make sure. And they had checks and balances to make sure that the punishments were never too harsh. Um, And so it was very much, it's like, this is the rule. We're going to enforce these rules but we're not going to burn you at the stake. You know, this, this isn't going to be like you're, you're going to be excommunicated. And they had a revision for a lot of the rules. And you can kind of tell um, reading it that there was uh, from like, there was some, still some after effects of the great schism where, because they even put some things to make sure that what happened in the great schism doesn't happen again, where they take a time out and be like, look, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to try to work this out. Um, and it was a much better, uh, you actually like, no joke, you have to read the documents in order to really understand what they were trying to do. Um, the, you know, the first five or six sentences are going to be, it's going to be this anathema sit. Um, and then after that, it's going to be like, look, okay, here's specifics as to what this means. Break it down, you know, the monk and the religious and the, and the priest and the bishop and yada, yada, ooh, and they break it down line by line. And they're like, and oh, hey, by the way, all of this can be literally just thrown out by the next higher up so that this way, so because the rule was not to be harsh, the rule was to make sure that people understood this is the rule. And then the deviations would have to be taken based on based on uh, prudential judgment. And they, they left a lot of latitude in there. And it was one of the things I was really surprised to see because I kind of like I came in there with the super tread. It's going to be this way. And then I'm reading the document and I'm getting like halfway through this big, ridiculous paragraph. And I'm just like, I didn't expect that paragraph to end like that. Like that's kind of important. And that's not what you normally get from people who are talking particularly because trads, what do we all talk? We all talk about Trent. We glide, we glide right past Vatican one and we land right at Trent. And rightly so, because, I mean, the greatest catechism um, in church history came out of that council. But, uh, you know, our assumptions about these things, I think, were more influenced by the First Vatican Council and the change to the Catholic culture that the First Vatican Council had. Because what I read, what I read about Paul III, Paul IV, um, what I read about, uh, you know, all of the popes in, in in that timeline, and I go, I mean... Pius V, you know, I mean, he like quo primum at the beginning of every missile, but it was very much, it was like, look, everything that's been around for a couple hundred years, we're going to hold to those. And this new stuff, you guys, I mean, there's Novus Ordo, you we're going to kind of kick to the curb. And, and to be sure, <laughs> that garbage that came out in Traditionis Custodis was like, there's, you know, the unique this missile is the unique it's like bro that's a lie like there's sir malabar the byzantine the coptic you know like uh, the benedictines the august the agustinians the like there's the dominican like there's the dominican right like come on <laughs> like nobody actually believed like well i take that back many people believe that it should be that way because anathema sit but it's not really. And even like when you go back to when you read the documents, of the Council of Trent, it's not. 
Um, it's very much, it's, we're pushing this. This is where we need to be. But we also know it's going to take a little bit to get there. I mean, in some kit, like they gave five years for some, in order to rectify some of this stuff. It's like five, I mean, I mean, granted, it's 21st century where I look at five years, like that's two presidents. Yeah. <laughs> like you're five years. I could, <laughs> I could manage to fix that one a little bit quicker. And they're like, well, we're going to give you this amount of time so that, you know, because they did what they didn't want to do was they didn't want to be like, Hey, get out and throw people out on their butts. You know, they were like, okay, we're going, you have a year to fix this, a year to fix this, another year to fix this. You have up until this point to get this done. And then, and then after that, anathema seed. Like then, then you could get out because at that point, now we know your BS. Okay, thank you, Caleb. That's that's a good insight, and I like that. The ghosts of of uh, the ghosts of Trent, or the uh, the reputation of Trent precedes it. Uh, you'd use the old uh, Doctor Livingston uh, expression there. That's great. Um, yeah. So a few things on that point, and then I'd like to say a few words about Vatican One and. Um, uh, so one of them is always that that expression whenever we deal with history that the historian begins in the kitchen and he ends up as a plumber in the street like one thing's broken that you have to fix the next thing fix the next thing so thank you for bringing that up with the idea of the um uh, what was it? the council of pisa i guess the council of pisa being the ghost that was stalking what became the council of trent because you found people in the 18 in the 14 70s and 80s, 100 years before uh, Trent proper, you know, calling for this and, 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 you know, 30 years before Luther, etc., calling for a council. And there was a huge hesitancy for, I'm talking a century and a half after the Western schism for having another council because of the question of conciliarism and is the council greater than the Pope and, and whatever. Um, so good point there that, you know, to, to you can have a whole other discussion about trend in this in this in this point. Um, and then secondly, I think you intimated really what I'm getting at in these um, these conversations and in the essay that I'll be uh, publishing uh, soon enough on this on this topic. And that is the idea that you're right, I'm right, Joe Blow's right. The Novus Ordo is the conclusion of Vatican One, which is actually kind of terra incognito for a lot of people. Um, because everything was great until Vatican II, right? Uh, um, but, but also, this is kind of what I've been playing with here, and also in an episode with Dr. Nirmal Das on Christian history and ideas entombed by Vatican I. This idea that a lot of us, uh, as I said in the email before, this flattering adjective, Catholicism, traditional Catholicism, conservative Catholicism, Orthodox Catholicism, again, whatever, um, a lot of us, however adjectived, are also completely the logical production of Vatican I. So your, your Novus Ordo, Traditionis Custodes, this is how it is, and this is the Roman Missal, and your spectrum of, of traditionalisms. We are all enslaved by a very specific legalistic way of looking at the Holy Church that came out of the 1870s and 1880s and continued to about the 1950s. And that's, that's as I see it, the reality. And that certainly, um, as I see it, is the, is the bittersweet aspect of history. I don't even say the tragedy of history. It's just this is what it means to be in life, is that we're the product of discourses. Um, any, I, I want to say something about Vatican I. Anything you want to uh, punt there, uh, Caleb? 
I'd almost forgot because when we were talking about the things that we went over last time, it was that big open spot that everybody has about the 19th century. Um, because we did, yeah, we did cover a lot in there um, as far as the, uh, the, the wide open spaces that you look and you go, where's the rest? I mean, it's a hundred years. So I, I completely forgot about that. I was just like, yeah, that's right. We did talk about that. Okay. Grant. Okay, great. Um, so uh, whether it's Trent and it's maybe exaggerated um, black and whiteness, as Kayla pointed out, or whether it is, as I see it, the, the um, smothering legalism of the First Vatican Council, uh, in addition to neither of us trying to convince the other, um, I want to be understood completely clearly here um, for the audience that there are no bad guys in this. This is the bittersweet aspect of history. This is not a discussion on the Reformation, but if you study the Renaissance and that whole period, I wouldn't even say there's bad guys there except for the civil nation state people behind the scenes and, and the bankers, but that's another discussion. I would, <laughs> I would kind of give Luther a break and Calvin without going in for their uh, their heresies and whatever. But uh, not Giordano Bruno. Never, never. <laughs> um, was he like the, like the Lutheran Italian guy? No, he was the um, he was the one who um, broke his vows as a monk because because he because he, he was a monk and he was a priest. He violated his vows. This that and the other fell into the occult. Um, got I mean, he got kicked out of his monastery and then he got called into Rome under charges of heresy. And then he said, "Forget about it. I'm not this that and the other." He fell into the occult. This and I mean, just made a mockery of what you, I mean. Just ditched it. I mean, completely ditched everything about being Catholic. Um, when he was finally brought up on charges, he was, he was convicted. He was defiant all the way to the end. He was convicted and the state authorities had him burned at the stake. And he became the icon of evolutionist and scientism and that whole thing. And it's like, dude, the dude was a magician. He was a sorcerer for crying out loud. You're talking about, oh, he's an icon of science. Like, come on. (laughs) <laughs> well that you're you're young man you're threatened to throw us off into a completely other discussion <laughs> the modernity being old old um old occult schools revive but anyway we're gonna have to behave ourselves there thank you for <laughs> reference there and maybe we'll have another show on mr uh bruno there um thank you caleb all right um so yeah no no good guys or bad guys um uh, in, in our discussion of Trent or Vatican one, or for, or for that matter, as it affects us, Vatican two. Um, but, but, uh, trying to understand the dynamics of history for this, this, uh, series of presentations. And so when we have Vatican one, and I have a few, um, images here, I'm afraid when it comes to council art, uh, <laughs> they're all kind of lame. I mean, no, no offense to the artist, but you're trying to convey these huge abstract ideas about salvation and grace and redemption and, and church organization. And all, I don't care if it's Nicaea or Lateran Four or Trent or Vatican One, which is what we're looking on the screen share here. It's all just like a giant church and a bunch of old dudes just sitting down. <laughs> uh, it doesn't quite have the, the spunk of the reality. Excellent use of perspective, though. That is true. There's your Renaissance there. Uh, eat your heart out, Council of Nicaea paintings. Um, <laughs> um, so this is a, a painting uh, illustrated and colored of, of the First Vatican Council. And um, 
you have to understand, getting back to even episode one of our, our series here, the rise of that nation state, and it doesn't really affect us right now, but there is a very, very occultic aspect and very spiritualist aspect of the secular nation state coming out of the American and French revolutions. Um, I'm sitting on top of Connecticut and about 30 miles away from where a poem called The Columbiad was written by Joel Barlow, who was an early um, um, diplomat of, of the New American Republic in the 1780s. And the Columbiad's a, a total occultist, <laughs> you know, spiritualist look at how, how liberty, the goddess of liberty, established this new free uh, republic. So there, there is this aspect. Um, and in the midst of the, the council, which is being called after many decades of, of liberal charges, but I, I wouldn't say, t- you know, given the, the extent of the Catholic Church and, and, um, and other, other concerns which pressed upon it, and indeed those, those ideas of history, I wouldn't say past due. I wouldn't say in the case of Trent or the case of Vatican I that these were excessively past due. Maybe they were five minutes overdue. I know Hilaire Belloc has some thoughts um, uh, in the opposite direction about Trent, that it took place way too late, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, the point is, uh, Vatican I is attempting to address uh, something far worse uh, than the Council of Trent, which largely dealt with, with ecclesiology and sacramental theology. Uh, Vatican I is, a te- is really a sign of the times. It's, it's, it's addressing the lack of belief in the divine altogether. I mean, 75% of the council documents deal with aspects of Christian revelation. It's only, uh, tw- I think it, if memory serves, it, it produced four documents. So it, the, uh, the percentages work out pretty easy for a historian, <laughs> not a mathematician. Um, so 75% of them have to deal with things like the inspiration of scripture, the, the uh, divine nature of the church, the, uh, the existence of God famously, uh, and, and so forth. And it's only the 25% that actually deal with ecclesiology, which is so entombed us. Going back to my early points that, that Catholicism after Trent is now dominant Hebraic, although maybe not as anal retentive as Kayla pointed out, dominant Hebraic in order to maybe shove back against some of the the Protestant theses and praxis, recessive uh, Greco-Roman. What you find at Vatican I is the church, as I said in the second installment, really begins to see itself just like a nation state. It's not going to compromise on its claim of uh, divine, uh, not just inspiration, but divine establishment or constitution it's not going to compromise on that that's that's your uh, thermopylae your alamo but it's going to basically agree to the entire liberal nation state praxis it's going to organize itself uh, in the same way that you see basically much of the western world and increasingly the the southern world and the eastern world via colonialism organizing itself now, this actually shouldn't be that much of a shock, and it should not be interpreted that I'm saying this is some tremendous deviation from a historical Catholic praxis, because the legal system, which is uh, resurrected after the French Revolution, and yeah, the French Revolution, not so much the American, which was more common law, but after the French Revolution and, and forward, that legal system was preserved after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, 
um, by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church never stopped operating under Roman strict law, the law of statute and the law of we're giving, you know, we're, we, the, the Curia and Rome are, are erecting this diocese and we are making you bishop and we are giving you these titles. And just like if you drive around in our chariot, uh, you have to fill it up with, you have to feed the horses, we'll say. If you drive around my car, you have to fill it with gas, right? Um, you're using my property. You have to follow my rules. That's the whole idea of the Roman law. Um, and we, you can, the audience should check back to the second installment about what a, a legal corporation is. So in a sense, Vatican I is not that big of a, a, a deviation, except that the, the rest of the world has, I guess, caught up to it or, you know, gone, gone with that type of Roman, ancient Roman way of organizing that the Catholic Church never, never, um, never left, I guess. Um, but what you begin to see is, indeed, the spread of legalism across the Western world. I don't have time to get into IDs and, and all this stuff that's going on at the same point. But um, I, there are some things I want to say about St. Pius X um, that really kind of hammer home this point. But anything you want to bring up, Caleb? The, um, <clears throat> I think it's actually really important to understand um, how big a deal the nation state and the concepts of IDs and passports as those, as those concepts start to get rolled out. Um, this is actually three steps past what God chastised King David for when he took, when he took a census. Um, when, when, when he took a census, it was okay. Let's find out what we got. And God was like, Oh, you want to play games? Okay. We're congratulations. You just overstepped your bounds. You're supposed to lead your people. You call them up. You're not supposed to know exactly like there's, you're not supposed to know all of these extra details. The, um, and so as we sort of begin to peel back what was very, I mean, and Protestants don't have, they have no excuse for this. I've been to many Protestant churches and all of them love King David and all of them miss when he took a census God chastised him. Every last one of them missed that fact. And it's vitally important because what was the first thing that all of these revolutions started doing? They started citizen doc, citizenship documents and birth certificates and census taking and passports and all of these and all of these things. And we're not, and admittedly, I mean, fast forward to now where you've got digital ID and all of these things that they're talking about introducing. All of this is all of this originates in something that God made very, very clear was not cool that they were not supposed to do. Um, you know, kind of he let it go with ancient Rome. You know, hey, we're taking a census. You got to go back to your city of your birth. Um, he let it go with ancient Rome, but Rome wasn't Israel. Rome wasn't Christian. Rome wasn't any of that. It should have been obvious that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and let this go down. But we should not have carried it forward. Um, and that should have been one of the hallmarks. Like when, when the Revelation talks about the mark of the beast, every one of these things that ever that, that increases the, the observation, the surveillance, and the control, all of these things are on that exact same line of a state, of a, of a government overstepping its bounds. Every last one of them. And it doesn't matter if it's the Vatican, and it doesn't matter if it's the United States, and it doesn't matter if it's Russia. 
Like it doesn't matter who's doing it. The fact is, is that's beyond the bounds of what's supposed to be kosher for lack of a better word. I'm really glad you brought that up too. Cause that was, <laughs> it was just like, hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> Great. And thank you uh, for that there, Caleb. And here's your citation for the audience here. Uh, whether it's the, the old Brevarium Romanum, which I'll mention briefly here, or the Liturgy of the Hours, we read, uh, of course, the Cycle of Kings every summer. And this is from the eighth chapter of 1 Samuel, to Caleb's point, uh, right after the census and all this uh, jazz. And Samuel, the prophet, that's me adding, Samuel, who was the prophet, was displeased when they said, give us a king to rule us. But he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said, the Lord said, uh, listen to whatever the people say. Let them have their cake. If you are not the one, you, you, Samuel, etc., are not the one they are rejecting. They are rejecting me as their king. And then I skip ahead a few verses. Uh, Samuel delivered the message of the Lord in full to those who are assigning him for a king, asking him for a king. He told them, quote, the governance of the king who will rule you will be as follows. He will take your sons and assign them to his chariots and horses, and they will run before his chariot. And he will appoint your, from them his commanders of thousands and of hundreds. And he will make them do his plowing and his harvesting and produce the weapons of war and charity. He's going to take your sons, your beautiful young son here, right? He's going to make him like the, the eunuch that runs before his chair in case there's a landmine or something. So he, the, the kid can get blown up. He's going to take your, your son to go, go, we go, yeah, kid, go out back. Read all the dandelions out there, right? Go do this. Go make me this. Go get me a cup of coffee. That's what the king's going to do. That's what Samuel's saying. Uh, he will make them do his plowing. He will use your daughters as perfumers uh, and cooks and bakers. Right. That's the, the Bible's being polite here. That's your Jeffrey Epstein stuff. He's going to use your daughters as your perfumers, your cooks and your bakers. He will take your best fields and vineyards. He'll take your olive groves, Caleb, and he'll give them to his servants. He'll tithe your crops. Right. I mean, what did Herod do? Right. When, when the girl danced. Right. Oh, yeah. I'll give you whatever you want. Right. You get completely drunk. I'll give you whatever you want, man. Whatever. This is the king. This is how these people think. The same way now, he will, he will tie their crops and grape harvest to give to your officials and his servants. And it goes on, to out and domine me, said nobis. Okay, that's, that's it there. That's your, that's your Caleb's citation. He's, that's from whatever, 3,000 years ago. Caleb just told you the same reality. Um, this book, you want citations? People want citations. I would very much recommend... This book, this is by Valentin Grubner from about the year 2004. Who are you? This is about the, the uh, impetus to track people and to follow them and to follow the citizens and so forth. Now, Valentin Grubner gets into the fact that the Council of Trent is the earliest um, uh, example that they have to, to record uh, baptisms and marriages but it's, it's also carrying on uh, much more uh, robustly with the, with the nation states. So anyway, I wanted to, to give those citations there, whether Samuel or, or Who Are You, which was the book just now, to, to buttress what Caleb was saying. Briefly, um, a few points about St. Pius X here on, on the screen share of a few images. Anything you want to say now, Caleb? 
No, no, we're good. Let's. <laughs> I feel like I've been waiting for this one right here. There we go. <laughs> okay, so just like there are no bad guys here, and, and I'm not implying anything sinister. Um, uh, we do have to have a few critiques against Holy uh, Pius X, uh, Giuseppe Sarto, a man of great great qualities and great personal holiness. Um, but uh, some points here. So we've said that the Roman Catholic Church begins to see itself as a nation state. And there are um, two points from his pontificate in particular, actually three, two points in three to use the language of uh, Chronicles, I think, or one of, one of, the, one of those Bible books. Um, <laughs> a, 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 few of, a few of them, actually. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, I think Judges, like <laughs> pretty it. common. <laughs> two points and three and five points and six and whatever and a bit of elbow room back back in the day um so uh those three points mm -hmm. altogether have to do um in the hard way again we're looking at i'm trying to make the point of the the praxis um the praxis not the beliefs of the of the roman church but the praxis absolutely does change after 1870 of course, very, very uh, appropriate to our discussion, Vatican I is called off uh, basically because of the Franco-Prussian War, um, which erupts. And I think that's a, you know, a perfect example of the, of the, the changed landscape, even from the, the 16th century, where things are pretty far gone. Um, it's hard to imagine the Council of Trent being called off because of a, a war between the Holy Roman Empire and France or whatever. Um, by the 19th century, the nation state clearly has the, the upper hand. And so when they go to war, you listen, you get back home. It's, a, it's an interesting. They, they, did they did have some significant breaks, but they didn't stop the council. Um, mm. What they did was they put, because they did have, um, there was a break, I think, between the fourth and fifth session um, where there was disruption that erupted and they transferred the council from Trent to another city. And then when everything calmed back down, they brought it back to Trent. So it, 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 to actually have the council canceled the way they did with the first Vatican council is by far unique. But they did have some breaks in there because it did have a lot of civil unrest, a lot of military issues going on um, at the same time. Uh, because, I mean, you're, you're talking, I mean, France, northern Italy, Austria, Hungary, Spain. I mean, everybody had something going on that was, that was uh, disruptive. Um, but to actually have them just shut it down, that was, I think, honestly, I think that might have been the major mistake of the first Vatican Council, because they, they let another, what, almost two generations happen between, they, between then and then when they finally picked it back up. Um, and they should have actually just said, okay, we're moving. Uh, that would have been a much smarter thing to do. Good. Thank you for that clarification, Caleb. Absolutely. Oh, that's absolutely a help there. Um, all right, so the two points that I had about St. Pius X here showing, you know, now, now in, in um, with documentation are the Acta Apostolicae Sedes and the Code of Canon Law, uh, the codification of the Code of Canon Law. The third point is what St. Pius X does to the liturgy. So let's take those briefly and... Uh, getting up to the main point here, which is that after the legalization of, of uh, Roman Catholicism at this hour, 
Um, basically, what a lot of us who are trying to address Vatican one, two, the crisis, the meltdown, we are not fitting at this hour, we are not fitting the definition that the Catholic organization has of itself. And therefore, we are not Catholic at this point. And that's that's where I'm going. It's trying to bite down on that bitter pill, at least for this hour. Maybe things will, I'm certain things will shake out. Part of my essay is going to deal with that. Things will shake out. But for this point, we're, we're LARPing. A lot of us are LARPing with all of our rosaries and our Latin masses and our our novenas and whatever we think being Catholic means, we've, we've mistaken that. We've mistaken verbing Catholic, which would have been okay. This entire methodology would have been okay up until 1870. But after 1870, and after certainly the code of canon law of, of, of 19, um, 1911, I think, um, and then certainly after the code of canon law in 1983, we are as pitiable as American conservatives who are talking about the U.S. Constitution. We're, we're, we're LARPing in a system which doesn't recognize these documents. So anyway, there's a lot there. Let me just lay this out briefly, and then I want to hear Caleb, and we can go back and forth just so that, that our, our points are understood for the audience here. So the Acta Apostolica Ceres are here. There's a, a decent... Um, Thing on Wikipedia uh, to get an, an understanding. Now, to understand the Acta Apostolica Sedis, I suggest to, uh, people look at the congressional record, uh, which has lately been in the news. We're recording this in uh, early April. And there's some interesting things uh, uh, lately enrolled in the Acta Apostolica Sedis. These are the acts of the Holy See. As Wikipedia points out, it's often cited as the AAS, it's the official gazette of the Holy See, appearing about 12 times a year, and established by Pope St. Pius X, obviously there's a typo there, St. Pius, uh, on, on the 29th of September, 1908, with the degree so and such, publication began in 1909, it contains all the principal decrees, encyclical letters, and decisions of the Roman congregation, and notices of ecclesiastical appointments. The laws contained in it are to be considered promulgated when published and effective three months from the date of issue, unless a shorter or longer time is specified in the law. So this is completely the type of thinking you get out of the Bar Association. Um, what's the deal? So I mentioned the congressional record. I'm trying to make um, a, a parallel. Um, the congressional record is Congress. This is what people don't get on. They don't get about the legal system. They don't understand about it. The legal system is what is written. I'm sitting, as I said, on top of a, a, a land mass called Connecticut. However, the state of Connecticut is a binder in Hartford. It is a binder in Hartford, and it has jurisdiction. It's it's uh, statutes and and uh, promulgations, etc., so-called laws. It has jurisdiction only under those who have signed the contract, most of whom are residents of the state of Connecticut who never knew what the hell they were doing to begin with. But that's beside the point. The point is the state of Connecticut is not the dirt I'm sitting on top of. That's Connecticut. The state of Connecticut is a binder. It's written down. We have a famous story in the state called the, the Charter Oak. It's so famous, it's on our, our state coin. There's a big old oak tree, and nobody here even knows what that's referring to. 
But there was a time where there was a big Indian uprising called King Philip's War. The king over in England, I think it was Charles II, he, he panicked. He said, we're done with New England, all these charter colonies. You're all grounded. You're all going to be this dominion of New England from Maine to Connecticut and New, uh, New Hampshire, et cetera, and Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont. You're all just going to be this one legal thing. However, he couldn't implement that until he had the charter because the charter was Connecticut. And that is a very difficult thing for people to understand that your legal. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Person is your birth certificate. Your state is the, the document in the binder. Your marriage, your holy marriage that the priest wrote the legal document in the back, uh, back room in the middle of the mass, that's your marriage. That piece of paper is your marriage, it's not your sacramental marriage, but it is your legal marriage. Everything legal is written. And one of the proofs of the legalization of, of Roman Catholicism is the Acta Apostolica Sedes. Um, lately, this really weird... Um, guy called Hunter Biden, his uh, email contents were just registered on the congressional record. And most people in America, as of April 2022, have no idea why that should matter, because that's not America, but the United States. So the fact that Mr. Gates entered that means that will forever be in the record of the United States. The same thing, whatever is written down, that also means things that aren't written down that are struck from the record don't count legally. Uh, you can look into the election of 2020 for that, but we <laughs> behave ourselves uh, here. Um, and I made my point, and again, you're not, you're not agreeing to this, Caleb, but have I made my point clear about the idea of everything legal has to be written? 
I'm going to go ahead and surprise you and say I would agree with that um, because we have something similar with the FAA um, as far as the logbooks for your aircraft. <clears throat> the, um, the, the logbooks, the maintenance actually has to be tracked. Every single thing that's done has to be tracked. And if it's not in that logbook, then it doesn't exist. And that, air, and that aircraft is, you know, is potentially, it's not legal to fly. It, and no joke, the penalties for that are actually pretty severe. Um, and so, yeah, no, actually, uh, everything that you were saying, I'm like, yeah, that cor that correlates to what I understand, um, with, with title 14 of the code of federal regulation, which is the federal regulation that governs my main, my day job. Great. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. Okay. So the next point here is the, uh, again, we're looking at some of the changes under the administration of St. Pius, the. 10th, much like the Council Fathers of Vatican I and even at Trent, again, they're trying to deal with history, much like Pope Francis right now and the Curia right now. Um, there are no good guys or bad guys in this presentation. The Catholic Church has managed to weather a lot of storms, and we can do normie Catholic land and just say, well, it's the Holy Spirit, and you may be right. Um, but there's also a certain methodology of, of hitting like a wave hitting new things in history that the Roman church has, has uh, had a, an ability for. If you find yourself Orthodox, Protestant, Nestorian, you might say that trying to hit that wave, you've also lost yourself. And that gets back to the whole Greco-Roman Hebrew thing. But the point is that naturally speaking, the Catholic church has managed to weather a lot of storms. Um, the Nestorian church uh, hasn't, <laughs> uh, incidentally, but that's another discussion. They have about 10,000 followers, most of whom live in Illinois, America, <laughs> not in, in uh, Kazakhstan, where they started out in Baghdad and whatever. And, and places. That's kind of a bad look. Kind of a bad look. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, the second point is the idea of canon law. Now, I happen to have, I think it was 1983 code of canon law and i think saint pius x his was in 1911 but it, does, it doesn't really matter his was the first codified across the board prior to him there were canon laws because again the roman church never 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 really stopped being part of the roman empire people kind of take that in sinister directions that i'm not uh intimating here uh it, like i say the, on a natural level the catholic church is basically like if the entire U.S. government stopped functioning, but the DMV or the library system just kept going, you know, it would obviously just have fingerprints from its origins, um, naturally speaking. Um, so I'm not intimating anything at all sinister, but what I am uh, certainly asserting with some force here is that the methodology is, is Roman. And going back to the Roman Senate, you were a Roman if the Roman Senate gave you the status as citizen. You weren't just a Roman because you were Joe Blow or Cornelius running around in Gaul, um, or you happened to be on the alleged jurisdiction of Rome. or what. I mean, you were a Roman because there was a very systematic methodology that you accepted the status of citizen. And that absolutely is the methodology of the Church of Rome. Now, we're not going to break this down too much. Caleb's had a long day working, and I want to respect his time here. But go to... Book two, The People of God, and just read part one. It's not very long. It's very concise. They In, in, in this um, book one, they basically define all their terms. What is a faithful? What is a Catholic? What is jurisdiction? And so forth. It, run, it reads exactly like the U.S. code because <laughs> it's the same methodology. 
but you can read this. And one point I will bring up here, and this is really um, to the real cherry on top of what I'm trying to say is that we, a lot of us in flattering adjective Catholicism are not Catholics, according to that organization. And as adamantly, as adamantly, as solidly as the Roman Senate had the, the only and final say on who was a Roman citizen, the actual people in Rome who own the canon law and have the copyright to the canon law are the only people who get to define what Catholic is. It doesn't matter that I'm, I believe in eternal Rome of Marcel Lefebvre. It doesn't matter that I'm, I'm adhering to the Council of Trent and the Fourth Lateran, Lateran Council. And I say my rosary every day. None of that actually matters. That's why Joe Biden and Mrs. Pelosi can be Catholics in good standing, because it's a legal status that's administered by Rome or by the diocese that they reside in. The, this is a hard pill to swallow. This is just like, and I'm, I'm so sympathetic to the traditional Catholic mind, just like I'm very sympathetic to the American conservative mind, but just like in American conservatism, you have these very dear, beautiful people who will be on the side of the road and they'll be pulled over by one of these so-called police officers and they'll hold up their pocket constitution. Just like in this, this hip bag, I have a pocket constitution. I'm actually one of those guys. Got to show it to Caleb so he believes me here, right? Just like these guys stand on the side of the road and they hold up their U.S. Constitution and they say, you can't pull me over. I'm traveling. I'm not in commerce. I'm a flesh and blood man. And they get tased and a lot of them get killed. And a lot of them are in the dungeons of the United States right now, including in Danbury, Connecticut, which is just down the road. Like those dear conservatives with their tri-cornered hats and their tea parties and whatever. In conservative Catholic land, we have to understand that the Catholic faith is what the Curia after Vatican I says it is. There's a lot to that. The final point, because I did tease at a third point. You're right. That is a bitter pill to swallow. That's a, a very, <laughs> and it also means, it also means those mm. of us like myself who've been dumping on Protestants and Orthodox for being these rebels and this, that, and the other. It's given me a lot more compassion about the so-called Great Schism and the Reformation, so-called, um, because you realize the bind that Christians in the past have been in, given the, given the direction Rome has decided to take its governing uh, structure. And I, in, in the next maybe five or ten years, if Catholicville, traditional Catholicville, doesn't really direct this head-on, I'm going to start having the same tone of voice I have to the, you know, maybe to the mainstream conservative movement. Like they know certain things like the NRA knows for certain what the definition of firearm is. And, and they're not saying it out loud because that would completely change their meal ticket. I'm getting into other other topics here. Um, oh, when when we're done with the show, we'll take a couple of minutes and talk about that. Because <laughs> yeah. I definitely because I definitely want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, right now, uh, not that you ever, you'd ever be needing uh, John Coleman's uh, uh, grace period, but for 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 that interpretive method, I would suggest to people who are you know ad- adhering to to traditional Catholicism. In the next five or ten years, I would really like to see the mainstream um, of that community really address this because the, the canon law is very clear. There's, there's, you can't lawyer your way out of it. This is not, you could, it's just like going to one of these, these admiralty law courts right now and saying you're a man on the land or whatever. 
you might you might be right, but the fact is that you're trying to operate in a system which doesn't acknowledge that reality. And, and then you go back to the Orthodox and Protestant conclusions. There's a lot there. The final final point to just just to to, to needle uh, a topic which which should also be brought up, I suppose. Um, Saint Pius X of Happy Memory, a man who was doing, I have no doubt, the absolute best that he could given the circumstances and given the very de-Christianizing uh, time that he lived in, including famously dying on on the outbreak of the First World War, uh, poetically or not, of a of a broken heart. I don't know if that's a medical diagnosis, but it, I think um, I think that's that's fair. That was a very uh, catastrophic event. Yeah. yeah. Um, not only does Pius X um, really instantiate the legalism of Vatican I, but also, um, I, I don't know how to break this to, to people, but there would have been no Novus Ordo Mise without the Bavarian Romanum of 1911. There would be no Novus Ordo Mise of, of 1969. There would be no Liturgia Ararum of 1973 if there was no St. Pius X, because he is the first pope who directly interjects himself and revises the bravery. He may be completely right. He might have been absolutely right in recovering a lot of ancient traditions that were lost after trend in the bravery. Just like the Vatican II council fathers may have been completely right. I'm that's a whole other discussion. But in terms of of making precedent, making legal precedent the actual first pope you ever see that directly interjects his thoughts in the liturgy is Blessed Pius IX. And he shortened the epiphany um, ceremonies, which was something basically like the Easter Vigil. It was just like this super long thing. He's the first pope I found who directly interjected himself um, in a way even, you know, that, that wasn't the same way as St. Pius V. But the one who really you know, in terms of a massive chunk of, of the Catholic liturgy, not just one ceremony for one day of the year, was St. Pius X, because you would not have the revised liturgy of Vatican II if you did not have the Bravara and Romano of 1911. It made the precedent. People talk about St. Uh, John the Twenty-Third adding St. Joseph to the canon, and that also is a novelty, but a much bigger novelty was in 1911, maybe completely justified. But nevertheless, it made the legal precedent. Caleb, jabber away. I've been going on at it. The um, actually, so I guess it's my turn to cite something. Let me grab something real quick. While Caleb's uh, getting that, um, please check out the description boxes below here on BitChute and Vimeo and YouTube. Caleb's um, his channel, his his uh, podcasts are there. So go on, Caleb. So the picture that you have on the screen is a really good picture and it gives you a really good idea of the overall size of what a breviary looks like. So I recently got the opportunity to pick up a portion of a Roman breviary from 1650. This is a portion of a Roman. This is one third of the breviary from 1650. <laughs> and <laughs> it is a or is that an actual original? This is an original. <clears throat> this is an original. The um <laughs> like this is not 
this made me dive back in and go, okay, I really need to polish up on my Latin because all of the red is written in Latin as well. <laughs> I could have, I probably could have gotten by if it would have been written in French. Um, but yeah, do the red, say the black. And I'm looking at him going, I don't even know what he's telling me to do right now. The, um, but, but this is a portion. And to compare this to the modern, to the modern monastic diurnal. Now, this is a this is an everyday book. Okay, it's a Benedictine diurnal. Is that not? I mean, I think they made some changes. I don't know what I don't know the. I mean, you can account for some of this with you know thinner paper because this is actually. Um, this is actually old parchment, and so the pages are are actually robust and thick. But only part of that is actually justified because when you look at the print, the print's pretty large, also. So, the um, I mean, there's only, <clears throat> oops, there's there's only there's only some of it that you can account for. Well, you know, we have better paper and you know better printing, but this is one third. This is the entire year for a monastic diurnal. <clears throat> Oh, that's a whole other show there, Caleb. Thank you for showing me that. That's a treasure to have. <clears throat> the, uh, <laughs> I saw it. I had the extra money. I had suffered from spiritual avarice. I pulled the trigger on it immediately. <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> and then after the fact, I, I started realizing, I was like, you know, you have enough trouble trying to navigate through the, through the little office of the Blessed Virgin. Um, and there's only a couple... And there's only a couple hundred pages there. <laughs> it's like <clears throat> definitely, uh, definitely came back, smacked me in the face, and I look and I go, "Oh, I'm okay at Latin, but I'm not this okay. I'm not this good." So, how oh, funny! That's, <laughs> that's something else there. Uh, yeah, I went through that stage about eighteen or nineteen. Uh, you know, looking on eBay for the old, uh, the old ones there too. It's funny. Uh, uh, I guess we all go through that stage there for uh, <laughs> books and all. But uh, great. Thank you for sharing that, Caleb. So I think I made my point. Um, uh, you can actually see this trend actually continue um, with Vatican II and the Code of Canon Law in 1983, where you have um, completely following on the whole idea of um, legal persons, just like the legal nation state potentially as we learned under COVID now um you know has a lot more power under that that status um than we might imagine we can huff and puff all, as we as much as we want but we all want the goodies from that legal person you know they're all they're all so so um desirable. so tasty they're all so tasty we all we all complain about it but we all want that bank account and want to survive in this this babylon so yeah we, we we put up with it the same with the catholic status the faithful status as canon law calls it I thought, no, I thought, I thought being faithful was saying the rosary every day and going to mass. No, that's not, that's not what a faithful is according to canon law. That's why you can be, uh, you know, Ed Kennedy or whatever for all those years in, in Massachusetts and, and hold these, these heretical positions because that doesn't really matter when you're in legal land. And that has to do with the idea of legal being opposed to reality. You can see Clint Richardson on that point. <clears throat> Um, but just to, to put a bow on it, I think I've made my point, and I welcome any any pushback or questions or clarifications, Caleb, and from the audience. Um, you can actually see this line of thinking um, expand at Vatican II, where for the first time the laity 
are um, mandated to do certain postures in the sanctuary. Prior to that, the um, the the posture, just as one example, only applied to those within the sanctuary who were under orders um, or were kind of had indulgences to be there, even though they weren't under orders, like uh, altar boys should theoretically be ordained acolytes, but as an indulgence for lack of vocations and things, you have these kids, you know, do do this, the ceremonies and there's a benefit in its own way for that. But strictly speaking, the altar boys are not canonic up until Vatican II were not canonically bound to anything only those who had the status of priest bishop or cardinal or pope from the Roman Catholic corporation actually had to do that the faithful wasn't an incorporated status as he became in the codified codes of canon law and so uh, you can see this roll down the 20th century with fasting regulations and so forth, using exactly the same mindset and methodology that the liberal nation states do with their driver regulations and whatever. Uh, the, the Sunday obligation, um, a, perf- a total snapshot of, the, of the, the legalistic aspect that's trying to perpetuate the spiritual reality of Sunday, Sunday worship. Um, and, and having exactly the result that all legalism has, which is, produces just a bunch of pissed off, resentful people that don't know what the hell they're doing, uh, which is, again, getting back to reality and fiction and trying to use fictional legalism to, to guide reality and truth. There's a very deep metaphysical, in my opinion, tragedy in where Roman Catholicism has ended right now is a long future ahead of itself. Right. <clears throat> it's kind of like the because I told you so. Yeah. yeah, because I or because I said so uh, sort of thing. It's like, well, I mean, if that's then I'm just we're just going to do that. The um, there was one one clarification, um, as I understand it, and I could be completely wrong on this because we're still well. <clears throat> airplanes are my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, the <laughs> but uh, as I understood it prior to the Second Vatican Council, um, there was. Because I know in the documents, like coming cranking out of, you had priest, bishop, or you had uh, deacon, bishop, priest. Um, and prior to that, we actually had, you know, tonsure, uh, porter, porter, lector, uh, exorcists, acolyte, subdeacon, deacon, priest. I really can't believe that I just actually remembered that just now. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but uh, um, the one of the things that as I was reading it through um, I think probably the, one of the biggest mistakes that the church made was truncating it. Cause they're like, well, we don't really have this many people. And it's like, well, tough um, because without the porters, without the lectors, without the, particularly without the minor exorcists, um, the, I mean, you, you talk about uh, what is it? It's uh, Saints Peter and Marcellinus. Um, I think it was St. Marcellinus who was, who was an exorcist. And then uh, I think Peter, I think St. Peter was an acolyte. Um, I know that they were both minor orders, um, both minor order saints. The, the minor exorcists are huge. I mean, you're talking, you're talking about, this is the guy who at the door and we're having, we're suffering from this, that, and the other, we need some prayers, blah, blah, blah. And he would give that first, that first line of defense and going, okay, we're going to walk you through this. And he would know the deliverance prayers and this, that, and the other. And then, and then it'd be like, okay, cool. Now go see father and go to confession. And then father would, and then father would go to confession, you know, give, you know, sacrament of penance. And so you had like this double wall 
Um, I, I likened it. I actually did a couple of podcasts on this. I likened it to a military where you took all of your corporals, your sergeants, your staff sergeants, your sergeants major, your lieutenants, and some of your captains off of the battlefield. And you just left the battlefield to the colonels and the generals. And it's like, you cannot run an army like that. And you certainly cannot run God's army like that. Without the minor exorcist, without the acolytes and the, and the subdeacon deacon. And granted, we don't need permanent. I mean, yes, there's a permanent class of deacons, but there should still be at a parish. Kids, you know, maybe, you know, a 13 year old newly confirmed kid who's the porter, you know, and then a 14 or 15 year old who's who's the lector. But it should be because that's how you get them to want like that's how you. <clears throat> one of the reasons why I went into the military was because I joined Civil Air Patrol when I was 12. You know, it, it like when you have the early exposure, you have you open the funnel so that you can bring in more priests, more clergy. Now, when you're doing all this legalistic stuff on the back end, it does make it a little bit difficult. But that also ensures that your subdeacons, your deacons and your priests are going to be the best uh, because they because they'll have the we had to navigate all of the stuff coming out of the chancery. We had to navigate all the stuff coming out of the parish. And we're actually here because we want to know, love, and serve God, period, full stop. It's when they shrunk all that down. And like I said, because I, I'm pretty sure it was in the process of the Second Vatican Council. But when they shrunk all that down, whenever it was, they did the church a huge disservice because you pulled all your corporals, all your sergeants, you pulled them all off the battlefield. and it's much more, you know, when you've got a church, when you've got a parish and you've got the priest and maybe you don't have a permanent deacon. Okay. Well, no big deal, but you've got a college kid. Who's the deacon. Uh, you know, you've got a late high schooler. Who's the subdeacon. You've got, you know, early, you know, junior, junior, sophomore, who's the acolyte, you know, and, and so on. But you have that progression. You're guaranteed. You're probably only going to lose. Well, three quarters, three quarters of the kids who go into the military have some junior ROTC, Civil Air Patrol, some sort of like military explorer program, you know, like police explorer program. Three quarters of those kids go into service in the military. That's, I mean, three quarters. Now, granted, you know, maybe maybe families don't want six out of their nine kids to go into to go into religious life. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's what spiritual directors are there for. That's what vocations uh, directors are there for. The we definitely could have maintained it would have been difficult, but all of the best things are, you know, the penances that you put yourself through Lent, the penances that you add to during Advent, the penances that you just go through day to day. Yeah, they're all difficult. They're hard, but they make you better and they make a, they make for a much higher quality Catholic and it would make for a much obviously higher quality church, the human element I'm talking about. The, um, you know, the divine element, I mean, you don't get, you don't get higher than the mystical body of Christ, but the human element of it, you make it, you make a much better, um, body. So. That's great. Thank you, Caleb, for that, that explanation there. I think I've made the points I wanted to make. So to, to make them again would be redundant. Um, but towards your points just now, I think there is an aspect maybe to our first recording of and to certain sentiments here, you know, a, a certain bittersweet, or in this instance, what I'll say is, is almost tragic aspect. Um, 
meaning Vatican II did, like a lot of things, theoretically have um, instituted um, uh, Eucharistic minister as in, in the manner that you say where it would be more than just your normy kind of seminary, you know, uh, lily pads, but it kind of branched out to more faithful members of the community in a regular, stable way, where that actually is, I, I think they use the word instituted, it wouldn't be under orders, maybe in, in, in the old fashioned way. Um, but there was that, and then there was the um, the lector, I think, was also maintained, where it'd be instituted by the bishop. And again, the similar idea that you just laid out, but the tragedy that I reference is, of course, to, to uh, episode one and now, uh, you know, just the damage, and, and this is where I also think there's a blind spot in a lot of uh, Catholic analysis of things, the damage that... Um, kind of this capitalistic or consumeristic society has um, played upon us. So there is no way in Hades that you're going to be able to get that in your, your white bread suburban parish. They, they don't have that thinking. And, um, and it, it's just, it's a, it, because, because it's not just the consumeristic mindset and the ads and, and just that way that that changes human interaction, which I see all the time with just the students at the school here and their, or their parents. Uh, um, everything's just a buffet. They have no, everything is just, you know, whatever serves my immediate needs, no idea of a larger educational vision or social vision. Um, you see the same thing in Catholicism. So Catholicism, because of the direction of thing in Protestantism and, and so forth, you know, you just see religion, first off, as solely a spiritual exercise. And secondly, how does it serve me? Some of that is not assisted. I'm, I'm sad to beat up on, on St. Pius X, who had, I'm sure, nothing but grand and holy intentions and please God, holy fruit. But part of that is also the the um, spreading out of, of frequent communion. Um, which doubtless, you know, had, had fine, um, a fine mind behind it, but also it created just dovetailing with that consumerism, this idea that you go to church to get something, to get something tangible. Um, so uh, that that's the tragedy that a lot of this stuff is still theoretically there in, in the council books, um, whether that's the breviary or the uh, the missal or the sacramental or the ritually and, and so forth. But in the meantime, we've been bled dry of culture and of a real understanding of the agency um, we have in this culture. And we've been filled like a jelly donut with consumerism and with, with so forth. So I think some, some extent of, of a break can be given to the second Vatican council, maybe even a large break to that aspect of just sociological changes, which I think don't often enter into a lot of the critique of the council. And that would be my final point there, Caleb. I, I largely agree with um, actually pretty much with everything that you said. The, there are things I would add. There's nothing I would actually uh, try to contradict, but there were, there are things that I definitely would add. Um, One of the things that made the Jesuits so dangerous um, on the spiritual battlefield is that they were soldiers from when they go, like when they first profess their vows as novices and they're just, and and they're just entering into the novitiate that it's soldier, soldier, soldier. This is war. You know, we are fighting a battle between against the world, the flesh and the devil. St. Paul understood this. This was one of the reasons why he was amazing 
um, as as a as an apostle was because all of like the Ephesians put on the whole armor of God, it, like every single thing, even even when he was talking about the more fluffy stuff, it was still very much in the this is a war. We are fighting a war. Um, and, and you could tell and it was definitely it was the influence of the Roman citizen, because as a Roman citizen, he would have understood these things very, very well. Um, the for all of his amazing mind um, and all of his holiness, St. Pius X of holy memory was not a soldier. I think, I really kind of wish that there would have been a Jesuit Pope before the Second Vatican Council, um, like maybe sometime in 1820. <laughs> um but the nature of the way they structured the way that the way they structured their vows um, basically made that impossible, and I can see why. Because had they not added that last piece in there, Ignatius of Loyola might have been the first Jesuit pope, and then and then instead of Franciscans and Dominicans and all this and all that, it would have been Jesuit popes from the start ad infinitum, <laughs> and. And and we wouldn't be looking at Pope Francis as the anomaly as a Jesuit pope. We'd be looking we'd be looking at Pope Francis as, oh, another Jesuit. Well, go figure. The, because because the military mindset um, allows you to it it takes all of the magnificence of the mysticism of Saint John of the Cross or Saint Teresa of Avila or Saint Catherine of Siena, and then put a weapon in the hand of the faithful. And say, move out, draw fire, go forth and conquer. Um, and and clearly that clearly St. Ignatius of Loyola understood that in that he knew he would because he had to have known to some degree um, to him and St. Francis Xavier, like when they were putting together the Jesuit order, that if they did this, you're talking about creating soldiers of Christ, soldiers who are um, and I hate the term, but sort of the alpha male the the go-getters the hard chargers they're going to be the ones that you know and they're going to be more irascible than others um i think to their credit i mean what do you the other the other joke about a Je jesuit what do you call a jesuit with only one doctrine stupid the um it like on the on the other side of that coin oh could you imagine you're talking ridiculously intelligent hard charging very dedicated, understanding that this is warfare, the Jesuits would have actually taken over Rome. Like, if, if, had they not put that in, they would have taken over Rome. And probably, I mean, admittedly, I'd rather that have been the case, especially around the time of Saint, you know, Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, uh, you know, Saint Ignatius Loyola, Saint, uh, Saint Francis Xavier. Like, there's, they got some amazing saints that moved forward and conquered. Um, but. <laughs> I can I can certainly understand it was like, well, but if they do that, then you run into the other corruption because then we would have act because then Roman politics would have been Jesuit politics would, would just would have been a synonym for Byzantine politics. Um, because the other thing is is that military commanders are tacticianers, they are strategists, they they see an objective, and for good or bad, and very often bad, that that planning, that mindset can be used for great, great evil clothed in the greatest of justice and charity and mercy and all that. Um, and it's <laughs> would have been dangerous. Also would have been nice to see. 
I would like if I could go into an alternate universe where there's Jesuit popes starting in starting actually from 10 years before the suppression in the seven in the 18th century. Um, <laughs> it would have been like you'd have seen a completely different 19th century. And we would be we we would be having as dire of a conversation about the Catholic Church, but it would be a completely different conversation. Um, it would, you know, because then it, because I mean, you, you would be having to pull back priests from donning Roman musculata and, and, you know, you'd, you'd have priests standing at the pulpit with a helmet and the glorica hamata and, and just like, no, yeah, no, 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 bro. Put the habit back on back up. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, funny. Thank you for that. That's, that's quite a visual there. <laughs> um, that's great. Thank you, Caleb. Um, yeah, we could have a whole other discussion. I didn't want to segue things, but the, the, the way that priests and clerics are formed after the Council of Trent until today is another example, whether you're in traditional land or, or Novus Ordo land or somewhere in between or elsewhere. Besides everything legalistic that I've said about Vatican I, I would say that is the other Achilles heel, I guess. That's the other Achilles heel of, of Roman Catholicism at this meltdown, to use my language from earlier, um, is the seminary formation. Because I'll, I'll put this bluntly, um, it, it, it uh, forms anything but alpha males. It forms... It forms uh, bootlickers, I guess I could use other language, but it, it, the, very, the very abject groveling dependence that a Roman Catholic seminarian, traditional Novus Ordo, whatever, it's the same model, just like the legal stuff I've said, that type of mindset, the fact that you could have a man, and I've known men like this, who've gone through five and six and seven years of, of training, and, and then their bishop says, nope, I mean... The, the very sort of man who would put himself into that, that uh, per, precocity, that dangerous situation. I mean, just, I mean, have you no self-respect that you would, you would enter into an agreement where you could throw away eight years of your life based off of someone else's say so um, that I think has done uh, horrible things to the, uh, the masculinity of the Roman Catholic priesthood. Uh, and even look at look at how I mean to, to their credit, look at the Protestant communions. Anyone who pushed back against in any serious substantive way, and there were not many, there were not many, but amongst the dear Protestants, it was only they who who really just kept their churches open, said to hell with it. I'm just using COVID as an example. The, the manliest of the Catholic priests, of whom one lives just a few miles down the road, and he was on Fox News, and, and may God bless him, the manliest of them could go to some attorney to try to legal their way out of it in, in a court, so fitting to our discussion. But the, the seminary formation produces a, a mindset which does not lend itself to addressing the crisis of the last century. So maybe that's another discussion. We can hash that out down the road. I'd love to do that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, it, I, <clears throat> most of, particularly with the exception of the irregulars, the society of St. Pius X, um, the society of St. Pius V, who, I mean, depending on where you go, you get like blatantly set of a contest, blatantly schismatic. Um, and, and some of them that are, you know, fully in conformity with Rome and all that it, it's, it, with with them, it's it, it's kind of a mixed bag, but it's a mixed bag enough that those two societies stand out where they said, um, we don't care what you say. 
we're going to keep doing our job for the most part. And then on top of that, you had the, the big famous case in Los Angeles that was prosecuted um, at the direction at the direction of a priest from the Society of St. Pius X. Um, he did also participate in the legal in the legal aspect of it. But I mean, like the whole time they were shut down in like Michigan, they didn't shut down. They were like, um, yeah, we're going to keep doing this. And and I think probably one of my favorites is that, you know, there's nothing scarier than an armed priest from Texas. <laughs> so it, it's and for the audience, armed priest from Texas. <laughs> the um, and for those actually, for those of you who happen to be up in the northern central Midwest area, you might actually know who I'm talking about. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but but uh, but yeah, no, it, it, there's. Um, and again, actually, the society takes a lot of their pattern of formation from Jesuit formation. Um, so, yeah, you do get the obedience stuff, but you get the militant obedience stuff out, out, out of out of them. It's it's and, and you can tell it's a different there's a difference in the way they preach um, than uh, and it's I heard it put best like this. The Society of St. Pius the 10th is the alcove of truth. The society or the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, priestly fraternity of St. Peter. Thank you. By the way, modern priesthoods, like, like all you modern orders, thank you for coming together with, with ridiculous acronyms that I can't say anymore. And I'm fluent in several languages and I can't say it. <laughs> the, uh, but the priestly fraternity of St. Peter is the, is the goodness like they're 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 bod, they're they're sort of goodness embodied in the in the way they preach, um, and the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest, again acronyms XP. I mean, come on, um, but <laughs> the Institute of Christ the King Sovereign Priest is definitely the headquarters of all things that are beautiful, um, and and you can kind of see like those are the three big pillars, and of course you have the Institute of the Good Shepherd, um, but and let's be real, they're not as large as those other three. Um, and so they're not as prominent, but those other three, you know, you know, the headquarters of all things true, the head thing, headquarters of all things good, the headquarters of all things beautiful. And I've been to all of them. And when you listen to the way a society, uh, uh, the SSPX priests preach, it's it's look, I'm going to tell you the truth. And you're just going to have to live with not being a good Catholic. Period. Like you can make the changes or not, but this is the truth. And. I mean, that's, you know, I've got the sacraments here. I've got sacramentals. I'll do everything I can to get you to heaven, but it's up to you to accept the truth. Um, the fraternity, the fraternity, I mean, I've never, I've never come out of a fraternity um, mass not feeling completely edified. Um, and I weep at the, like, I mean, the total beauty of the Institute of Christ, like from beginning to end, I've got tears trickling out of my eyes and then you hit the you know you hit the high point of the mass when when he's when he's holding up the blessed host and 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 it's just like ah, and at that point i'm ugly crying because it's just too beautiful um and it's very much now if we could get them all into one then we would have the perfect you know it'd be perfection but um the conversation i had with an orthodox friend of mine he goes 
well, you know, we have, you know, our Orthodox monasteries, they basically all encompassed and they go through this, that, and the other. And then the monks will travel from monastery to monastery. And I'm like, yeah, we don't do that. We have like the Carmelites and the Benedictines, the Augustinians and this, that, and the other. And we've got all of these, you know, these different aspects. He's like, well, what is that for? Do they travel? I go, no, they stay put. The laity travel. <laughs> the laity are the ones who go from monastery to monastery, travel around and actually take in all of, all of the different fruits. And he's just like, huh. And it was, it was like, it didn't even occur to him that the monasteries might actually be there for the mystical body of Christ to actually go through and explore versus for the actual holy mind. I mean, to be sure, you're talking about a lot of very, very holy monks, um, but they're the ones going to travel. I'm like, well, you go there for a retreat and you get basically the same thing everywhere you go. It's like, well, yeah, because it's the whole faith. And I was like, ah, no, that's a broad, that sounds like broad strokes. Like that's not actually taking out and looking at, you know, Raphael and Da Vinci and Donatello and, and Michelangelo and, and, and Bach and Beethoven. Like, like we kind of broke it up to where you can really sort of focus in on a particular type of spirituality. And if, if you're dedicated enough to actually go on the pilgrimages and go on the spiritual retreats and all that, then you can get a very, then every Catholic can get a very holistic Catholic um, a catechism uh, sort of, I, I want to say stewing because it basically like, like you, you end up getting suffused with the broth out of each, out of each of the, uh, out of each of the monasteries. But we have that as an option for the faithful. It's not really so much the option for the monk, but that's why we have these amazing saints, you know, St. Joseph Cupertino, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Teresa Lusso, like they every one of them bringing something so distinct um, and different, even within the particular charisms of the Carmelites and the Franciscans and the Dominicans, like every one of them, because it's not, I mean, you know, you could, I mean, you could play on your team. I could say, yeah, I'm SSPX Jesuit all the way, but I lived entirely too much of a life with a lot of mystical stuff going on in there where I, I'm not going to say, Oh, I, I'm not doing the Carmelite thing or I'm not doing the Franciscan thing. No, I, I'm definitely covering all bases because that's how you, you know, that's how you become holistically well. I hate using the word holistically because it sounds so stinking new age, but it's the truth, you know, but that's how you become a, a whole Catholic in, in, in your perspective. Is it for everybody? No, but it's there. It's available. You can learn from the eye and the hand and the nose and the foot. You don't have to actually be the whole body encapsulated in one. So that was way off from where I thought I was going. <laughs> A good place to end it there, Caleb. I think um, I think we might have one more um, one more installment to your point about the different groups, you know, where things are going. I know that's going to be a focus on my essay as well. Uh, not just to point out what, in my opinion, is basically a corner that everything you know, painted into a corner, painted into a corner is the name of the essay, in fact. Um, there's, there's no lawyering out of this. There's no trying to argue that Vatican II wasn't a real council. And, and or if I just keep doing all the, that, in, where I'm coming from in this, we need to understand the corner that we're painted in. But maybe on another uh, presentation, we can see a bit more speculatively where we're, we're going you know, in the future, because I have some thoughts and I'm certain uh, that you do as well. 
it definitely I, I think we would call the next episode the the catholic tower of babel <laughs> on that point we'll we'll knock off here again uh everyone uh please check out caleb's uh, podcast down below and also consider enrolling in a Baptist Stasis for our private classes in the humanities, language, history, literature, all sorts of topics. You can check that out uh, in the WordPress site below. Anything else you'd like to say for announcements, Caleb? Um, I'm, I really wish I was working faster with my website and all that so I could do some quick plugs and all that. Um, but I'm still on Spotify. I'm still on, uh, well, I mean, I can be found on Spotify. I have a podcast for Acast. So I can be found pretty much everywhere. Um, and still kind of undergoing some overhaul because I'm trying to get everything ready for the website as well as um, when I switched podcasting hosts, I lost 798 episodes that I have to re-download and then re-upload. So, <laughs> correction, re-download, convert to another format, and then re-upload. So that's going to be super fun. <laughs> All right, so everyone can take a look out for that whenever Caleb uh, in the next two two decades gets through with that. <laughs> there. All right, audience, thank you for watching. And Caleb, thank you especially for your attention here and your fantastic insights. Thank you very much for having me. It's it, As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.